and good morning good afternoon and good evening wherever you are and welcome to this episode of the groovy podcast my name is ken cousin i don't have baruch sadagurski with me this time last week baruch tried to do a live groovy podcast from the devox conference in silicon valley uh, in san jose specifically and while they did do a recording it uh, had serious issues with the sound actually first i tried to join this podcast and then they had their own camera and their own sound system so we weren't able to get the permissions to work quite right and then they decided to record it without me and i believe they had their uh, victor gamoff and guillaume laforge was there as well as kyle boone and i think craig burke might have been there as well do you know craig or kyle by the way mark just out of curiosity I've never met Craig or Kyle. Um, I've met Guillermo, um, but yeah. I have forgotten either one of them. There's a teaser for you, by the way. Uh, I have a guest on today's podcast. I've got Mark. All right, let me try this. Viera, is that close enough? Close enough. I mean, he's going to let me get away with pretty much anything. He's just that kind of nice person. But I'd like to try to get it right. Uh, Mark is a principal engineer at Gradle, or do you say Gradle Inc., or what do you say? I know what you can't say is Gradleware. Right, right, right. I think uh, I could just say Gradle. I think the, uh, the the corporate entity that it exists as is irrelevant as far as, far as I'm I, concerned. I'm still struggling with that. I still call the build tool Gradle and the company Gradleware. I'm trying to break that. Uh, I really shouldn't admit that because now, of course, I'm I'm helping out at Gradle Inc. as well, doing some writing with the guides and things like that. Uh, but I'm not. You're you're a full time person there, right? That's correct. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into all that. But uh, what I thought I would do before we get into the real interview is I would go over some of the news items that have come up since we've last done a podcast. Now, it's been a while. Uh, we had planned to do one at DevNexus down in Atlanta, but it turned out there were very few Groovy-related presentations there, so we decided to uh, postpone until we were free. And unfortunately, it turned out neither one of us ever seems to be very free. <laughs> so it was just hard to schedule things. Um, anyway, you haven't met Kyle or, or Craig Burke. I was going to mention that they are both very active in the Groovy community. And uh, they, along with Dan Woods, are very, very big fans of, um, of uh, Dean, uh, uh, Dane Cook, by the way, the comedian there. Uh, yes, Craig actually did a wonderful presentation last year at GreatConf in Minneapolis on and demonstrated his, his Dane Cook bot, which was a Twitter bot that was able to detect when Dane Cook had been criticized and then tweeted in response some major defense or something like that. He, I think it ran for minutes before he got blocked. It, it, didn't, it took a while. You know, it was longer than we expected. Uh, he's got this great talk that I, I, I really ought to put in the show notes sometime called uh, Practical and Stupidly Impractical Groovy DSLs, and that was one of them, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, I, I just thought I'd mention that. Now, in terms of the podcast news items, there have been several releases since the last time that uh, we had a podcast. Uh, Groovy itself has a 2.4.9 followed by a 2.4.10 release. These are all basically bug fixes and regressions. I don't think any major new features were there. There has been a lot of work lately on the new Parrot parser that will be upcoming in the next major release of Gradle. I don't think it'll be 2.5. I think it'll be two, a 3.0. Uh, which will go to the Parrot parser. And the big feature there, or one of the big features there, is that that supports the Java 8 syntax for lambdas and method references and the rest of the features from Java 8. I mean, Groovy runs comfortably on Java 8, and wherever Java 8 is expecting to see a lambda, you can provide a Groovy closure without a problem. But it'll be nice to support the actual syntax. The other thing that the Parrot parser supports is this macro capability that's being added to the language, which is basically, again, compile time metaprogramming without having to, with some auto-generated code. It's, it's like using an AST transform without having to write an AST transform. There's a, there's a lot of really powerful stuff involved. I understand it dimly. Uh, we had an interview with one of the team members a while ago. I expect to learn a lot more about it when that's released. Uh, the reason I bring it up, though, is I believe there was a post this week 
about a link to a groovy console online that was supported by the parrot parser so that you could in fact experiment with it uh, i'll have to track that down and put that in the show notes again yeah, that'll so, be that'll be sorry? interesting that'll be interesting the java 8 stuff is is kind of nice um there's some there's some stuff there like uh like default interface methods and stuff like that that currently groovy doesn't support you can kind of get around with the same thing with traits, but then it gets becomes difficult because traits can only extend other traits and they can't extend interfaces and vice versa, right? So, so that'll be that'll be nice to support that uh, going forward because I found yeah I'm running into that limitation already, which is oh, that'll be nice it, on the Gradle internals. Uh, yeah, and just writing plugins and stuff like that where you kind of you kind of have stuff that's written in Java, so. So you really want to you want to extend an interface, but provide default implementations for some of the methods. But you can't do that in Groovy because you can't provide default interface methods if you write the code in Groovy. So you know, having to sort of write it in Java and then use the class, you know, use joint compilation or something like that, and use it from Groovy, which is which is typically fine. But um, sometimes typically like to have everything one hundred percent Groovy if you if I if I can, um, just because it simplifies things. So, um, yeah, every every once in a while you have to write some Java code in there. It's usually because of the Java eight interop stuff. This is yeah, that's definitely true. That ever since Java eight has come out, Groovy has had analogous ways to do things, right, but right. they're not exactly the same. And and since Groovy kind of prides itself on its easy integration and adoption by Java developers, it'll be great to have that syntax all supported natively. Uh, I found it also fascinating that the Android people have decided that they are actually going to jump to Java 8. And they're not, they're getting rid of that Jack compiler and the Jill mechanism as well. And instead they're going to support Java 8. The problem is of course that won't be until at least uh, Android O, right? Right. But I mean, they found that, you know, just working with the, cause the Android is just full of, it's like swing code, right? It's just full of all these anonymous inner classes is the right way. Exactly. And it's just a nightmare. So, which is why uh, you know, Groovy and Kotlin got so popular in the Android development, right? Because you can use you can use uh, closures and, and lambdas and SAM coercion and stuff to write all that stuff. It's so much more concise. Uh, so I think they kind of felt the the pressure there, um, but we'll see. So I'm sure there will be like another big legal battle with Oracle during <laughs> when yes. when that happens. Uh, and I'm and I can't help but think that that's part of what took so long was that well, we just came to a compromise on. The API they say we stole now. What happens when we, you know, write an implementation of Java eight and we have to do this whole thing all over again? So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree, and I I'm glad. I, I also agree, by the way, that it's the the lack of Java eight and Android that has given Kotlin such a big push. Uh, that doesn't completely explain why Kotlin's gotten such a big push at Gradle, but we can always get to that later. I mean. If your primary design goal is IDE integration, it's hard to beat that. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll come back to that. It's nice to see, though, that Android is going to support Java 8. By the way, if O doesn't eventually stand for Oreo, I'm going to be very disappointed. I mean, what else could it possibly be, right? I'm not really sure. I mean, I, they might, I feel like sometimes they, they purposely pick something sort of obscure just to kind of throw you off the scent. So I wouldn't be surprised. There's like orange sherbet or something like that. Yeah. But I wonder what the what the deal is with using what is effectively a brand name, right? Because they kind of did the same thing with KitKat, right? Like a KitKat is a is a thing owned by Mars or Hershey or whatever. Actually, it was, it was owned by Nestle. The story I heard is that they had planned for months to call it Key Lime Pie. We all knew it was going to be called Key Lime Pie, and then with like a month to go or less, somebody decided that, you know, internally we've been calling it KitKat all this time. What if we just contact Nestle and ask, you know, no money exchange or anything, but can we just use the name? And the, the legend has it that it took a company the size of Nestle less than half an hour to go, yes, 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 yes. You know, we'll take all that free marketing, be my guest. Right. And that's KitKat was born. And if that story is true, I haven't been able to verify, but if that's true, I can't believe the owner of Oreo wouldn't immediately do the same thing. But who right, knows? Right. It'll but be, who knows? It'll be interesting. <laughs> any rate, um, it, it'll be nice to see all that syntax supported in uh, in Groovy. You know, once they do the 
and I'm pretty sure it's a 3.0 release that probably will happen sometime later this year that will have the Parrot parser under the hood. I know they've been working very, very hard on that. Uh, speaking of, let's see, Grails and Gradle. Well, Grails released uh, 3.2.7, and there may be a 3.2.8. You know what? I haven't, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say I haven't checked in a moment. So let me just do my normal SDK list Grails here. And it looks like we have 3.2.8, and I even have it installed. Well, that figures. And so that's available. But both of those are – there are not a lot of new features or anything like that in there. There's still basic improvements and bug fixes to the underlying Grail system. I think they've moved to GORM 6.1 as well with additional features, uh, but not nothing dramatic, no major changes. It still works with a lot of the NoSQL databases, uh, Mongo, Neo4j, Redis, uh, I think Cassandra now as well. There might be one or two others. Um, still, it's getting better and better. So that was Grails. They, they, uh, there's been a lot of effort on the Grails guides. If you go to guides.grails.org, then they are increasing their offering of guides. We're, I have to say we're working on something similar at, at um, Gradle, building guides there as well, but we haven't done anything on the look and feel of the page compared to what the Grails people have done and the Spring people before them. You know, the, the Spring.io, the, the guides over there, what really was the first one that started this whole idea, you know, of the guides uh, in, as a way for people to get up to speed very quickly. So at any rate, that's the Grail stuff. Again, nothing radical, nothing major changing, but uh, a lot of improvements along the way, uh, as well as uh, other new releases. I do. Well, one of my favorite Gradle plugins is Gretty. You ever use Gretty, by the way, Mark? Uh, yeah, that's. Um... Andre's Hilovsky's plugin. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he's uh he improved it to 1.4.2. I remember when when Gradle released the um, the 3.4 release. I wanted to check with uh, Andre to see if if he supported that yet. And he was within a day or two of upgrading, and and he has since upgraded. So I believe that supports 3.4 probably 3.4.1 as well. That's very useful. Uh, any other news items to mention? Well, uh, there are now official Docker images for Groovy. And of course, Mark, as you're probably aware, there's now official Docker images for Gradle as well. Yeah, it was a little, was a little weird because say official, but we didn't, we didn't publish them. <laughs> Someone from the community did that, uh, but there are by official, I mean they're available from the official Docker repo, which is kind of nice, right? So you can see so there's no random Gradle repo that you have to, or registry that you have to you know, register with Docker to grab them, right? So, um, so that's kind of nice. So you can run, basically pulls down Gradle uh, on top of a JDK, right? Install, and I think I think you've got one that uses JDK seven, and then one that uses JDK eight, so a different basically a different uh, image based on the base JDK you want to you want to use so yeah there's some interesting use cases for that um, but some folks are just super big on they just they run everything in a container right they just install nothing on their machine right so that's kind of their jam yeah well thanks for that clarification you're right it's it's not anything official via docker it's that these things are hosted at the official docker uh, library repository whatever you call it of docker images right so right. uh, I was browsing it this afternoon, and they were using Gradle 3.4.1, and I saw JDK 7 and 8, and I even saw a couple that said JDK 9, which must be on an early access version or something. I didn't look at the details of those, but they were there, and they had both JDK versions and JRE versions, which I didn't even know would work. But supposedly that's all in the library there somewhere. Right, yeah, I mean... I mean, theoretically, you don't need a JDK to run Gradle if you're not actually compiling Java code. Um, so, yeah, if you're if you're using it for some other, like if you're using it just for native builds or something like that, or or, or something else, then then technically you don't even need a JDK. And I know there's a lot of uh, interest in Gradle at, be at at becoming the default build tool for many languages for many different environments. We talked uh, last month about uh, PyGradle. You know, the, for compiling Python, I saw one this month on something called, I don't even know if I, what the name is, but it's a 
pony language compiler with Gradle. I have I don't know anything about pony language other than reading the the, the blurbs on the web page. Do you ever use pony at all? No, never even heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be um, uses an actor model for concurrency. It's highly performant. It's open source, object oriented. All the motherhood and apple pie words. I've never heard of it before, but hey, now it's got a Gradle plugin. Believe Great. it or not. Yeah. So. <laughs> Good for them, you know, that sounds good. Uh, the other thing, uh, news items I should mention before we dive into our stuff, let's see. There was an excellent presentation made by uh, Stefan Oehme. Uh, Is that how you say his name exactly? Yeah, Stefan Oehme. O-E-H-M-E, you know, it's O-E as in O-Umlaut, presumably, right, in German? Yes, German, yeah. Oehme, so, I mean, uh, back when I was in school and dinosaurs roamed the earth, I, I took a smattering of German. Uh, so I, I can get myself in trouble. I don't know enough to get myself out of trouble in German. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Stefan did a very interesting uh, webinar with uh, Trisha G from JetBrains uh, about how to do composite builds, Gradle composite builds inside of IntelliJ. Now, I, I watched that last weekend because I wasn't able to watch when they were doing it. I was involved in something else, but there's a YouTube recording of it. And I watched the YouTube recording last weekend. Um, just as an aside, personally, I had a couple of Chromecasts. You know, I, I got a Chromecast as a, uh, as a, what do you call it, a speaker gift or something, but for some presentation I went to. And then I uh, had another one I bought, and recently I was able to get another, you know, a grant or whatever, and I got a Chromebook for the first time. So I now have a Chromebook. And the neatest thing about the Chromebook is that the Chromebook can broadcast to the Chromecast, and what this has meant is I'm watching more YouTube videos on my regular TV. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, I've been watching some of these talks on a big screen. If you will, Big is a relative term. I, I don't think it's that big a screen, but my wife does, and of course that's what, that's what mattered, you know. <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, I watched Stefan and I watched Trisha G do their, their talk on composite builds. Now, Stefan not only talked about composite builds in IntelliJ, he mostly talked about them in general. You know, he said he used uh, like TextMate or Atom or something and did them from a command line and showed how easy it is to do a composite build in general. For those who are not aware, by the way, Gradle has had this multi-project build capability forever. You know, this idea of having... Uh, directory with several subdirectories, each of which is its own Gradle project as well, and setting up dependencies between them and shared settings and everything. Well, now, uh, what version was it introduced composite builds? Is it 3.2 maybe? Um, it's it, it was in there earlier, but yeah. I think it became public API, yeah, around there, 3.1 or 3.2, something like that. Yeah, well, now with a composite build, you can actually use a build from a totally separate project in another directory or even supposedly on another machine, although I haven't tried that. But you can import a, uh, it's not the term, it's an import build. It's import uh, build script or something, I think. Yeah, you include, you, you basically include the other build, right? So, right, right. So, so you, you make a composite of two potentially completely separate Gradle builds, potentially in two separate Git repositories. Um, and then, uh, which is fine, but then basically the benefit that you get is, is sort of the idea that I have project A that consumes a library built by project B, right? Um, and I want to meld these things together so that I can basically work on these two things at once, right? Which is, which is kind of what happens a lot when, you, when we talk about multi-repos, right? Is I have some service uh, that I'm working on to I know I have some functionality, but I need to also update some shared library that it uses that lives over here. And typically the development pattern becomes, okay, well check out my service, check out that shared library, make the change I need in the shared library, publish it somewhere, probably to some local, Maven local or something locally on my machine um, so that I don't break anybody else or whatever. Um, update my consuming build to pull that new version that I just built, test it, say, oh, that didn't fix it, repeat the cycle again, right? Um, so that's that's a sort of development cycle that people become really accustomed to 
um, basically, but primarily using Maven snapshots, right? By um, I bump the snapshot version, bump the snapshot version, install the Maven local, pull a new version, right? Um, which at the least it, it means making a change, right? Running a build, running a build in, in a second build, you know, to, to get it right. So, so basically what a composite build does is it considers both those projects one build. So then I make the change in my dependent library and Gradle goes, oh, well, rather than grab the binary that lives in the repo, I'm going to build it just like it was another project dependency in a multi-group project Gradle build, right? So, um, and then the cool thing with, with what JetBrains has done is, is basically added that to IDE support. So now not only do I have two projects and I can test my change in the consuming project by running one build, right, which delegates the build, uh, but I can actually import both those projects into a single IDE and work with them uh, together, right? Uh, and get the jump to code and all that stuff, just like as, as it was in uh, one one mega project, which hasn't, which you've been kind of been able to do that with Maven by importing Maven projects, but you really haven't had that capability with Gradle until composite builds. So, so that's really neat. Um, the old version of IntelliJ, they had a sort of hacked together implementation of this where you have to define the composite like a special way in, in IntelliJ. Uh, but in, in 2017-1, uh, it actually, you, you define the composite build using a normal Gradle DSL, and then IntelliJ will just detect that and import it, right? So there's no, basically, there's no way that you don't have to treat it differently for the ID than you do for the command line. So um, yeah, the composite build stuff is is really, really neat. That, that as, as folks have gone to microservices and shard everything out to a billion repositories, mm. um, it's it's made that that development process of well really to make this change or implement this feature i need to touch three or four different things right and then aggregate those changes into the final consuming service or or whatever it is right um which has made people sort of go the other direction to the mono repo thing right which makes that really easy because i have all my source code in one place i just import one enormous project um, but it makes versioning and things difficult and stuff like that. So, so it's kind of one of those things where now you don't really, that decision of how you store your code um, has less of an impact on how your developers work, which is, which is what we want, right? I shouldn't, how my structure is laid out in various repositories and how it's versioned and, and how the release cycles work individually on these components shouldn't dictate my development patterns and how I, how I do my work and how I compile and test code. Uh, so that's kind of the goal in that is that we it's basically an abstraction over the top of how you how you structure your projects because uh, now it becomes uh, irrelevant. So so that's really 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 neat and uh, yeah that uh, the the support in IntelliJ obviously is huge right because basically if a feature doesn't get, if there's no analogous IDE implementation of it people just ignore it right they don't <laughs> not use it. Well, Stefan did his demos from the command line and, and using a text-based editor. And he also did what you were saying. He presented the use cases, you know, why you'd want to use this, when it comes up, how it simplifies your life. And then Trisha took over and demonstrated everything inside IntelliJ. And everything worked very nicely. It's a very good presentation. Uh, it's certainly worth watching, you know, the YouTube video, especially if you're not familiar with with uh, either the use cases or the latest version of IntelliJ, the 2017.1 uh, version, which I updated to. I always, uh, I have this foolish habit of updating immediately, you know, right away. And sometimes I'll be about to give a talk on the tour or something like that. And I'll see that it's an update is available 20 minutes before the talk and I'll update anyway, because hey, what could go wrong? You know, uh, everything, that's why we watch. But at nice. any rate, uh, it looks like it's a really nice capability. Uh, so that's in there. Now, speaking of Gradle, of course, uh, two major things that are that came out lately. Well, there's actually several things that have come out lately. Uh, Gradle now has Gradle Enterprise, the 2017.1 version, and of course, Gradle itself is up to 3.5. I think Release Candidate 2 came out earlier this week, or was it last yeah. week? RC2 came out Monday. Yeah, Monday. So very recent. Now, rather than dive into that directly, uh, let's see. I don't think I have anything else I wanted to mention news item-wise. Um, so other than, of course, the fact that this week is the Greech conference, the the excellent Groovy conference in Madrid. Uh, a lot of people really enjoy that. A lot of, I mean, it's always a good excuse to go to Madrid anyway. And a lot of people uh, find that a very popular conference. 
unfortunately, neither Baruch nor I will be there. So we are hoping to hear news items from there, either on Twitter or people write up summaries or something like that. Uh, so we, we do wish everybody there the best and hope they have a really good time and everything. I also should mention that the, uh, I think the initial um, program for Great Conf in Copenhagen has been announced. Uh, Venkat Subramaniam is the keynote speaker there this year. And they have uh, all the usual people will be there. It looks like lots of interesting stuff. And they have a special uh, DevOps day as well with Groovy. And I think that is also going to carry through to the Great Conf in Minneapolis in July as well. Uh, the call for papers for that one, I think, may have closed. I'm not sure if that's still open or not. I think uh, I'll have to check. Now, like a week or two ago. Yeah, I know that. I, I know the European one was done. I think the U.S. one did as well. I think you're right on that. Uh, so, at any rate, those are going on now. Let's turn this around and and let's uh, let's now talk to you. <laughs> uh, by the way, thanks for the the uh, feedback or the responses on any of the news items. That's that's very much appreciated. I'm glad you're here for that. Uh, but now I have to say, I had seen your name around for years. But we hadn't actually met. I did we meet at, at Java One or something? I think we might have met at last year's Java One. Yeah. You were there, right? Yeah, we. I, th I think the first time we met might have been at the Gradle Summit last year, or maybe. Ah. Because you were at the Gradle Summit last year, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, was... think that might have been, I think that might have been the first time, and then later. Uh, no, it, it wouldn't have been earlier than that because I was at UberConf the year before as well. Okay, and I was there, but I and we may have met, but it was only in passing. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. summit for me was was a mixed thing. I I really loved seeing everybody there, but I had to give two talks on the last day, practically the last slots, and I was, shall we say, uh, still refining my slides. Is that a subtle enough way to say it? Uh, so. I was just very, very busy uh, trying to get things ready before that. Incidentally, one of the talks I, I gave there that was a last-minute thing I was really working hard on was a Jeb talk, and I used Craig Atkinson as my primary resource because why wouldn't you? And since then, of course, Craig is now a member of Gradle Incorporated. So yes, that's sir. great. Now, when did you join Gradle? So I joined Gradle in uh, it was January of 2015. So it's been a little over two years. Where did you come from before that? What, what's your background? How did you get into IT? Are you one of? Are you a career changer? Were you somebody who started in IT and stayed there the whole way? No. Yeah. So my, yeah, my career is kind of interesting. So Good. <laughs> I got I got my first job in IT when I was sixteen. I got an internship um, at the city uh, here in Modesto, California, in Central Valley. Um, Basically, uh, they had like one guy running their website, right? They had this ASP monstrosity, like developed with <laughs> front page. This was early 2000s. Um, and so he was he was sort of like a systems analyst guy and, and, and took over the website was sort of his duty, but just didn't have the time uh, to dedicate to it. So, so I worked for the city for three years, um, just part-time like, few hours a day um, doing that. And that was a lot of uh, classic ASP VB script web development stuff back in the day, um, Microsoft Access databases, that that sort of thing. And that was sort of my first real real programming that I did was was that. And that was and that was right when .NET came out too. Sure. The very first .NET 1.0. Um, and so uh, did a little bit of that when it was brand brand new basically um, so I did I did that for a while um, and then By the way, uh, did, did you do any VB6 at the time were you or were you a VB.net no that was no VB6 at the time I mean okay. I, I played around with it but uh, now, yeah, the only I, reason I mention it you saw that this week or early this week that this the stack overflow uh, developer survey came out did you see oh, that yeah, yeah 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 and at the very top of the most Disliked languages, the ones that people were dreading working with at all, was still VB6. Still, yeah, VB, yeah. What's What's interesting is that a, so ASP was written in VB script, which is even right. worse, right? Like right. Much, as much as people might think that VB 
DB6 was at least, it was at least sort of strongly typed by default. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of more or less. Um, but VBScript wasn't. You had to. You, you hey, I used it in Excel. I know. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was really weird, and a lot of the database access stuff was via like COM and, and stuff like that. Right. It was, it was really awful. Um, yeah. So so did that for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then basically, um, I was uh, so when I was nineteen, uh, I basically couldn't find a full time job doing that, and I didn't really know what I was doing anyway. Uh, so I joined the Air Force in 2005, um, and basically my job was a, a computer programmer. Uh, so that's an actual specialty that the Air Force has. And they oh, still have. Thank you for uh, your service. Yeah. So so I served six years. Uh, most of that I spent in uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, where the big electronic system center is is hosted there, uh, working on uh, mostly Java enterprise systems. So stuff to manage training records and uh, did that for a while. And then I worked on a system that managed munitions, which basically tracking bombs. Um, huh. It was all written in J2E and struts and stuff like that, if that makes you feel any more confident about our military. We also had a lot of COBOL systems that we still maintained. What, what app server did they use? It was Everything was on WebSphere at the of time. Of course, of course. Uh, right, <laughs> because it's big and expensive and sold by IBM, so it must be better and more performant. And right. yeah, you can get the IBM on engineers on the phone quickly. So um, yeah, it was yeah a lot of a lot of WebSphere. So that is what it is. Um, so I did I did that for for six years, and then uh, when I separated from the Air Force, uh, I I moved to Colorado Springs, and then. Uh, Got a job with a defense contractor there, basically kind of doing the same same thing. Uh, I was deployed overseas and worked overseas in a air operations center for a while. Basically, the the room with all the big TVs looks like war games that they plan all the oh, wow, you know, wow. missions and stuff in. Um, and so, so I worked for a company that basically developed mission planning software and stuff like that. So the software they used to to tell, schedule. Tell Tell me you hacked it to say, shall we play a game? Please no, say that. Yeah, I was rarely let in that room. <laughs> no, were they, you enlisted, by the way, or were you yeah, a civilian contractor? I was enlisted. I was six oh. years enlisted and then a civilian contractor for about four years. Um, so so a lot of so about a decade total in in defense, mostly air mission planning and that kind of stuff. So huh. so that's that was my background. And then so basically I was Doing that, and then um, a lot of Java stuff, and we were you, we were sort of the the system I was working on was Ant. We we're yeah. building everything with Ant, and basically most of the new Greenfield stuff in the in the company was was going on the Maven. But there was still this big sort of divide that we hadn't really settled on anything. Um, so at the time, basically migrating this monstrosity that's built with Ant that's actually it was really interesting because it was basically a composite build, but with Ant. It was actually code from three separate repositories that was checked out, and we would compile code and overlay it a certain way to make sure the class paths were just so. And, wow. and it was it was pretty it was pretty gnarly, um, and basically migrating that thing was Maven was just. I think a few people that are like were no longer with the company had tried it and long since, like quit programming after <laughs> after after attempting this. So that was kind of my first sort of start with Gradle was, I was like, well, this, this ant thing is terrible. Um, this, the Maven is just such a tough fit because it's just so much custom stuff that we have in here. Um, so I was kind of looking for a solution to migrate that project off to. And that's kind of where I got started uh, with Gradle. Um, and then um, and basically becoming sort of the Gradle dude at at the company, which mm. which is very common there's some sort of build master person that doesn't it just sort of falls into that role because they're they're someone that cares about that domain and, and and works on it most people just don't care right they just kind of want it to work um and uh so i spent a lot of time on the gradle forums and stuff like that and uh just basically uh got noticed and then was uh was asked if i was interested in in a position there um oh, wow. Yeah, and so that that's January 2015. Started with the company, and I spent more or less the first year, year and a half, doing a lot of um, services work. So 
uh, teaching training courses and going on site with folks and helping them with their migrations and, and stuff like that. So a lot of a lot of traveling and sitting with people that are like, we have this mess, we want to try and clean it up. And uh, so that's really interesting because you get to see a lot of really weird use cases, and, right? Every bills are like unicorns, right? Everyone's a little bit different and mm. integrating with everything in the world, right? Well, we got to integrate with this code generator, this application server, this custom, you know, annotation processing framework that, you know, Sally over there wrote 10 years ago and then left the company. Nobody really knows how it works. Um, so, uh, so that sorry, was pretty- uh, Don't mean to interrupt you there. We, we, sorry, we, sorry, we, we hit a bit of a, a lag glitch right in there. Can you repeat that last oh, part? Uh, yeah, everyone's yeah. custom build and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the custom build stuffs are always really interesting because it's always it's always custom integrations, right? It's always we have we have some something for which there is a, a sort of ubiquitous library that everyone uses now, but they wrote their own in house, and somehow you have to talk to it, right? It's like, right. well, yeah, we wrote our own web framework that you know whatever, um, and it has to talk to it. And is there a plugin for that? Well, no, because it only exists in your company, right? We have to sort of write all this stuff, so. So yeah, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. Um, and then, sort of in the spring of last year, um, I transitioned to the the Gradle Enterprise team. So mm. basically, working on um, build scans and bringing Gradle Enterprise as an on-premises uh, solution. I basically working on that uh, that sense, um, and then keeping my ear to ground with the with the build tool team and stuff as well. And still doing some some customer support stuff as well to try to keep as involved in that as possible. All right, well, for those who are not aware, uh, Gradle has had this neat build scan capability built into it for a while now, although it's becoming much more common, much more popular. Uh, you have to put in a, a plugin in order to enable that. I believe in a future version of Gradle, that's probably gonna be built in by default. Uh, but then you have to put in a little bit of, ex a little bit of um, uh, code just to sign the license agreement, to agree the license agreement. And then if you're using the free version with the build scans, then your build information is uploaded to Gradle, at which point they assemble all the information for you in a nice organized fashion, tell you what flags you had enabled, which ones you didn't, what how long each step of the build process took, what your dependencies were, what their dependencies were, all kinds of statistical information. And if you want that sort of thing in-house with a lot more advice and also the ability to compare your recent scans to previous ones and things like that, that's my understanding. That's where Gradle Enterprise comes in. Is that correct? Yeah, so Gradle Enterprise is the inside the firewall. Um, basically, you host it yourself solution. Uh, it comes with some other neat goodies that the, the sort of free one doesn't, right? So the... The, the free version of build scans is hosted at, at gradle.com, scans.gradle.com is, is sort of meant to get people started, right? So you can see what this, how this feature works and what a build scan is um, and how you can integrate with your build, which is trivial. Like you say, you basically apply a plugin and go. And, uh, and if, you wanted, if you wanna use that, you wanna hook up your builds for your project to that, you can, it's free to use and, and have a blast. Uh, That's but, one of the guides we finished, by the way. So right. we have a, a guide on getting started with build scans. So. Yeah. So, but for for most of the sort of bigger organizations that want that want to use this seriously as a tool and they want to um, do analytics on the data and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, they they they're going to want to host it uh, in house, and that's what what Gradle Enterprise is. Um, and then uh, soon it will come with some additional other features like a version of the build cache and stuff like that. So there's some other benefits to, to using that. That build cache, by the way, is something I had never heard of. I, I presume that's pretty new. Uh, I saw that the people who are writing up the guide section, uh, that's um, Stefan Wolf, right? And, and some of his cohorts uh, were working on that. And the idea is that you can take the output of individual tasks and cache those. I mean, Gradle has had basic inputs and outputs with that sort of, um, caching mechanism that allows you to skip things when the inputs and the outputs haven't changed. You know, it's whether to run tasks at all or not. It's had that for a long time. Now you're able to cache the results of individual tasks, either locally or remotely. You could even share them across 
projects as well. Although there's, you know, there's certain conditions that have to be met in order for it to believe that a cache value doesn't have to be regenerated, right? That's one of the hard problems in computer science, right? Is cache invalidation. Right, right. But yeah, that so, build, go ahead, you yeah, say it. It's, it's similar to update checking thing, right? It's just, it's just knowing that, hey, can, can this output that was produced with these inputs on this machine, can they be reused on this machine, right? Um, and in many cases, they can, right? If I compile some source code with this version of Java 1.8 here, right, that same bytecode can be reused anywhere, right, which is kind of one of the benefits of, of, uh, of the JVM, right? So, um, so basically, if these things are portable uh, and you declare that your task is portable by saying that it is cacheable, right, um, then we can then we can do that and we can say, well, hey, some CI machine already built this stuff an hour ago. There's no need for you to redo it. You can just download the pre-built um, uh, output from from the cache server. Yeah, anything to speed up the build is a good thing. We should probably also say something about the uh, the new Java library plugin. Were you involved in that at all? Yeah, that was well. That was primarily uh, Cedric Shampoo, who's um, mm. Oh, Coincidentally, so well one, known of the, in our group, so. <laughs> yeah, one of the well, you know, major committers on the on the Groovy project, and you know, creator of, of the Groovy static compiler, basically um, worked primarily on on that, right? Which is, which we sort of see as sort of a stepping stone to to Java nine modules, right? Wow. Sort of, sure, sort of getting getting there. It's better than than the existing sort of reality, which is sort of um, you know, these sort of bloated class paths and, every, you know, API and implementation is sort of melded together and I bleed all my implementation details, um, but still compatible with non-jigsaw platforms, right? Because it's going to take people a while to get there, right? Well, well, let's let's be clear about this. This is not part of Gradle Enterprise, except for the right. fact it's part of Gradle. In other right. words, you can use the Java library plugin for free on any project, and the only difference is instead of, using the configuration called compile or or test compile you can now say either api or implementation right and right. if it's api then what you're saying is is that this dependency or dependencies are intended to be exposed to the client the client does know about this and can code to that whereas if it's an implementation it's part of that then you're basically warning them that this is a, a detail that could change with without notice and that you probably shouldn't code to that if from outside is that more or less what you would how you would say it yeah it's, it's actually even even more deliberate than that right so so the distinction isn't just uh, semantic right there's there's a functional component to it right so it's kind of like um, you know, like in Maven, there's like the option, optional dependencies, right? Which is basically Maven's way, way of telling you that you can use this dependency if you want, but there's not really a functional component to, to marking a, a dependency with that scope. Basically, Maven just ignores it. Hmm. Um, so, but the difference between API implementation is that the, the class, your, the consumer's class path changes depending on which one of those you use, right? So basically if I say, if I have a class and one of my methods uses a guava utility as part of the implementation for that method, but doesn't expose any of the guava classes as, so my, my classes don't extend any guava classes and none of my methods return guava types or take guava types as method arguments, huh. then, then your code doesn't need guava on the class path to compile against my library. It only needs it at runtime, right? Which means that when you are writing your code, Guava will not show up, right? Unless you've explicitly said you need it, right? So, so it's 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 actually enforced at compile time, right? It's not, oh look, hey, this utility class showed up, and I'm going to use it in my code because some library I need just happened to bring it in as one of its dependencies, right? And and what what happens is is that that's usually incidental, right? Is well, we just use this internally, and which means that we're probably going to change the version arbitrarily because people shouldn't be using it, right? But there's nothing actually stopping them from using um, transitive dependencies that aren't actually exposed by the, by the API, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this happens all the time when you're writing Gradle plugins, right? We've done a lot to try and 
you know, keep the API as small as possible. And in later versions, it's a little bit better, but this happens all the time is people write uh, a Maven plugin or a Gradle plugin and it uses some Maven Plexus class or something like that. It's like, well, that's not part of the Gradle API. It's just being exposed because it's on the Gradle class path and you just happen to be getting it. Um, and then when we undoubtedly change the version we use internally, your plugin breaks, right? We're like, well, that's just kind of part of part of the deal. So, so that's one of the benefits of the Java library plugin is basically saying, basically telling downstream consumers, um, basically limiting the uh, the surface area of the class path that they see, right, to be only the things that are that are truly part of the API uh, and not and not the implementation. And this works even if the consuming project isn't using Gradle or isn't using the Java library plugin, right? Because the metadata that Gradle produces is, is compatible. Basically in Mavenland, these implementation um, dependencies get mapped to runtime scope in Maven, right? So that when you import that, you get that POM, at compile time, you're not gonna see those dependencies, but they will at runtime, right? Because you're saying these things are required at runtime. Okay. okay. Now are these, um, is the implication here that you use the Java library plugin with the Java plugin? I mean, use both? Because it, it sounds like they have different purposes. It it's basically if if I understand it correctly, the Java library plugin it would be in lieu of the Java plugin. Right? So will, have, will you still have compile and test compile separation as well? Are you going to list your dependencies under both API and compile and or I mean how do you, how are you going to organize things? Yeah. So the the Java library plugin basically is is built on top of the existing Java plugin. It just okay. it it just defines these additional configurations, right? So so basically, you should be able to effectively change Java to Java library and your project will still work because those those old configurations will still exist yeah. and we'll treat them exactly the same for the purposes of generating IV and POMs and stuff like that, right? So so you can sort of migrate um, at, at your leisure, but effectively there's, if you use the Java library plugin, but you don't use the new configurations, it's as if you were just using the Java plugin. There's really no benefit. Well, but I guess my question is, is I'm accustomed to putting my regular dependencies under compile and my JUnit and Makito and other dependencies under test compile and my JDBC drivers under say test runtime. And if I'm using the Java library plugin, do those change or do I still do that? Or do I also add an API and, and okay. do I say I don't want, I mean, how does that kick in? Is, am I missing yeah, something? So you can still use all those, all those configurations for the Java library plugin. You can kind of think of it as everywhere, everywhere where you use compile, you would, if you just used API, you would get the same behavior, right? You just say, here are all my compile dependencies are also technically API dependencies. Um, what you'll find is as you're going through those dependencies, you'll find that many of them actually aren't API dependencies. They are implementation dependencies. So that's kind of the migration path is I apply the plugin, stuff that is currently compile, which basically shows up as both compile and runtime for everyone that that needs me. Right. Um, we go and say, well, actually, this, you know, Commons IO and this other thing, you know, Guava, Actually, I don't expose any of that in my my library, so I'm going to change those to implementation. And then okay, now what if you, what if you're trying to restrict to just tests, or is that really a, a completely separate concept? Um, it's well, it's important because so one thing a lot of people fail to to realize is that tests are a consumer of your production code. Yeah. So 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 that makes a difference, right? So so if I change if I have a dependency that's an implementation dependency on on my regular my production code, the stuff in source main, right? That means that dependency will also not be on the compile class path of my tests. Okay, perfect. Right, right? because my my tests consume are a consumer of my code. That's that's really what unit tests are meant to be. Is what happens when I bring this thing in as a library and I use it? What is what is that behavior like? Right, and it should emulate what it is if I brought that thing in as an external dependency. Right, so we we try and map that. This in Gradle is basically treat your test code as if it was an external consumer of your production code. So all the dependencies that come in are the same way. A common confusion of this is, is with compile only, right? right. Where well, folks will add a dependency to compile only, and then they go, well, oh, now my test won't compile. Well, you, well compile only dependencies are, are, are dependencies that are used only to compile that code, right? They're not exposed 
to anything that brings that thing in as a dependency to include your tests, right? So for most people, it usually means that they have to de define that dependency twice, right? Um, but it's it's mimicking the behavior that a consumer would get, right? Which is a consumer that brings in this dependency would not see that compile only dependency. So why should your tests? Right. So the, the goal, if I if I understand this correctly, is where now I say compile and test, compile and test runtime. In the future, I'll probably say API and implementation and test, compile and test runtime. I'm still, those are really separate from the idea of what's going on with API and implementation. Right. right? Okay, right. so all right, I get it. That makes sense then. Uh, now, just as a, again, as a reminder, the Java library plugin is built into 3.4. Is that correct? Or is it a plugin you can add anytime? Yeah, 3.4 was the first the first release to include it. Right. And 3.5 is going to have that uh, build cache that we were talking about, the task cache, if right. you will. And all of these things, of course, will eventually be in Gradle Enterprise as well. Is there anything else that you've been working on or you're interested in talking about uh, at the company? Um, no, I mean, it's your can... chance to say something to Hans that he might not know you're going to say. So, you know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so 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 3.4 um, was a really interesting release, right? So the Java library plugin. Um, and in general, just all the compile avoidance stuff, right, that we basically right into the Java plugin to be sort of and some of the stuff that you get from the build cache was meant to do this as well, right? Which is things like basically Gradle's incremental build checks were very coarse, right? So things like basically if the hash of this file changes, then my task is out of date. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things that are smarter about that where, you know, a, a jar is more than just a hash of its contents, right? The things about a jar that affect having to recompile my code are really is the bytecode in the classes in that jar different, hmm. right? Not only that is, is the public API from that bytecode different, right? So basically meaning if I update a version of a jar and the only thing that changes in a new version of the jar is the name, you know, the version number in the, in the name and the manifest changes, and then they fix some bug, right? So that the implementation of one of the methods in one of the classes is now different. Um, I don't have to recompile, I shouldn't have to recompile my code because really nothing changed from a compilation standpoint, right? Um, none of the method signatures changed, none of the public methods changed, none of the inheritance tree changed. So I don't have to recompile my code. The behavior changed, so my, my runtime class path is different, right? So I, have to, I should have to re-execute my tests I shouldn't have to recompile my code. Um, and it might sound trivial, but it's, it's really a big deal because these little, it's these little things that happen all the time that basically cause incremental build to not be as effective as it has. And for the build cache, it means you get cache hits when you could, cache misses when you could otherwise get cache hits, hmm. right? Um, so, so a lot of work was done into making basically that uh, when we compile against something, we compile against a class path and what we consider a class path is not just a dumb hash of a bunch of files. It's actually what is the public API of all these jars, right? And we compute that ABI, the binary interface that we compile against. And if that doesn't change, we don't need to recompile. Uh, and the same thing happens for the for for caching purposes, right? So so in Gradle 3.4, there's this new notion. I think it was maybe earlier, right? Where right we, you talked about before, we have inputs and outputs, right? We had that forever. Right now, this notion of a class path is a special type of input, right? That it's not just a hash of a bunch of files, right? It's we expect this to be a class path. So things that are jars, we analyze more deeply and say, well, technically this jar and this jar, although their hashes are different from a compilation perspective, there's no difference between them because the mm -hmm. ABI hasn't changed, right? So so we, we sort of encourage folks that if you're writing Gradle plugins or custom tasks and you're using Gradle 3.4 or newer and you have what is what is really a class path, right? Like you, you have uh, some schema generator, right? That uses access to or something like that. So you go and grab the access to, use that class path to run the generator, right? Where you would normally say, well, now my class path is an input files, right? It's just a big list of jars that I'm gonna hash and then make sure they change. Um, where really that file collection is used as, a, as an input to a class path 
um, that that's that's what we should that's what we should use, right? Um, so so that stuff's all basically just works. You just kind of use the new annotation, um, and we we do things like well, the jar file name changed or the order the entries in the jar changed. We don't care, right? That doesn't that doesn't matter, right? Stuff like that. Um, so so basically just makes it so that where you would otherwise have to know your task would be out of date, it's now up to date. Of course, if um, you're still using Access 2, you probably have bigger problems than well, just... Well, some people are still using Access 1. Or... <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, no, I, I know. I mean, it's uh, when I was uh, writing my original book, the Making Java Groovy book, I had a whole chapter in there on Groovy with SOAP-based web services. And we sent it out to a bunch of reviewers, and about four of them came back with, no, don't include this. Nobody does soap-based web services anymore. That's ridiculous. It's a waste. And I'm sitting there going, you don't interact with the people I interact with, <laughs> you know? I mean, we took that chapter, because I've already written it, and it's a free download on the website. You know, we took it out of the print, but, but it's still just a free download. And to this day, I run into people who go, oh, yeah, we got this WSDL file, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing That's really good. goes away, does it? Uh, now, we didn't say anything about, I'm trying to think of what we didn't talk about. Um, anything about Kotlin that you wanted to bring up or not? Uh, anything about, we should mention, by the way, the Gradle Summit, but any technical issues before we bring that up? Um, no, yeah, I mean, so the 3.5 also includes the latest Kotlin work. Um, yeah, the, the Gradle script Kotlin 0.8, I think it's called. Yeah, so, which has so the, it's got Kotlin 1.1 in it, which 1 brings 1. in the coroutines. That's yeah. the one thing in Kotlin that I have yet to see uh, an analogous feature in Groovy about. Now, I, I did see a blog post saying they don't like Kotlin coroutines. They'd rather use reactive things like Rx Java or reactive streams or whatever. I honestly don't know enough about either to make an assessment on that. Um, but it's neat to have that in there. But again, I don't know of anything in Groovy that is completely analogous to a coroutine. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, a coroutine is a sort of part of the language, right? This notion that this block is it's a continuation, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of, it's just syntactic sugar around the same, same type of stuff, right? Um, and if you... Uh, if you messed with any of the React stuff or uh, like Rat Pack promises and stuff like that, the right, same, right. same type of deal, right? It's just the DSL on top of all the stuff you need not worry about to make sure that this code, which is actually asynchronous, runs in the order you want and handles exceptions the way you expect and, and things happen the way you want, right? Um, it's the same thing, but applied at the, at the language uh, level. So it's a little little more concise and a little bit more first first class, but it's the same thing, right? It's some code that runs on a dedicated pool mm. managed by something you need not worry about. And uh, So I wonder and, if the, the feature inside Rat Pack, because I've never seen anything that can rival what they do with the, as you say, being able to be sure of what's running when and what in what order and how they're able to isolate the things that are blocking from the things that are not blocking and run on a separate pool and everything. I mean, they, they've got some extremely elegant solutions over there. So the what you're saying is it's sort of like they took that idea and tried to move it down to the language level. Uh, yes. And we'll see, of course, whether that's a good idea or not. It's all, it's just more generic, right? So the the, neat, the kind of neat thing about the Kotlin coroutines is um, is they're extensible, right? You can define your own, right? So there's no there's no reason why you couldn't re write the sort of reactive DSL that leverages coroutines, basically define your own coroutines, right? Um, so uh, that kind of do the same the same thing, right? So. Uh, sort of the same thing, right? You think about Rat Pack. Rat Pack has this sort of first-class notion of, you know, compute logic versus blocking logic, right? Stuff that right. should code that is blocking versus code that is not, and they run uh, in different thread pools and they're managed differently, right? Right. Uh, implementing those as coroutines, right? That internally the coroutine assigns that work to the proper thread pool, as a, as uh, as is the case, right? Um, there's a lot of other stuff that Rat Pack does though with with uh, you know, making sure that the context is correct and and stuff like that, but it's pretty it's, awesome stuff. It's yeah, same, same idea. Okay, um, so. well, we we got the idea, and that'll probably be something we'll talk about again in a in a future podcast. Uh, I did want to say something about the the Gradle Summit, right? The the summit is in June, and there will be uh, well, anything that you wanted to say about the summit itself? 
yeah, the summit this year should be should be really good. I mean, we like I said we have we there's probably more new stuff between the last summit this year, last year, and this year, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, all the Java library stuff, all the composite build stuff. So um, well, like at the last at the last summit, composite build was 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 basically not publicly released yet. We were we just sort of showed off this hacked version and that was in master. Um, the build cache, right, which we've been um, sort of talking about this notion. We've been called it a bunch of stuff in the past, right? Distributed cache and all this stuff, right? right, right. Now finally, finally a thing. Um, and and then Gradle Enterprise, right, which is um, going forward going to basically come with a build cache implement, basically act as a build cache server. Uh, for you, in addition to to using build scans, so I mean that's that stuff's huge. It's the stuff that the folks have been asking for, sort of forever, right? Is this notion of, um, you know, I have a bunch of build machines. They all have to rebuild this jar a billion times to run the tests, right? Um, why not have a, a build that builds the jar and then the other hundred build agents reuse that same jar, right? Uh, it just seems like. It just seems like common sense, and folks do all this stuff by copying Jenkins workspaces and all this stuff to get around this issue, uh, or doing something weird where you build a jar, publishes it a binary dependency, then pull yeah. it as a binary dependency instead, right? Like basically doing like dependency substitution, um, right? To use the binary dependencies instead of project dependencies to get around this, this issue. Um, but basically, the build cache is sort of a general solution for that it doesn't just work with jars it works with any task that produces output uh so so that's pretty cool so so we're kind of we basically the the summit's going to be a little bit more structured this year in the sense that sort of have tracks um yeah the android track is the one i've been seeing a lot about and that upcoming 2.5 release of the android plugin uh i've heard remarkable performance improvements from that. I just haven't had a chance to see it yet, but Hans Doctor and um, Zav, uh, Xavier Ducroyd uh, gave a talk last night at the San Francisco Android user group, and it was well attended by you know, people from all the major Android players in the community, and apparently the talk went very well. There was a lot of very impressive results to come out of that. I'm looking forward to seeing all of that too. That'd definitely be part of the summit. Right, yeah, the, the Android stuff is another it's it's sort of work is happening, but it's not super obvious that it's that it is. You yeah, because kind of play around with it now. There's a, I think a pre pre alpha beta release of the 2.5 Android yeah. plugin floating around there that works with uh, with Gradle 3.4, um, and I mean the the performance differences are just ridiculous. I mean I mean it's something like a hundred times faster in some certain scenarios or something. Like oh, that. I can't wait because that's a that really is a pain point in the Android community. So we'll see how that goes. Yes. Uh, okay, let's just just to wrap things up a little bit. Uh, I guess I have to ask you. Um, I presume you prefer uh, IntelliJ over other IDEs, or do you have a different IDE preference? No, I do use IntelliJ. I use Eclipse for years and years and years. I uh, switched to technology one day, like five years ago. I also upgraded to the latest 2017.1. Yep, very good. Okay, tabs or spaces? Oh, spaces. <laughs> spaces? Yeah. Okay, I get that. Um, just, just curious about that. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, do you put the open curly brace at the end of the method signature or at the beginning of the next line? At the end of the method signature. Well, it depends. If I'm writing C sharp, then I'll put it on the next line. But otherwise, well, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, but it, you know, at the end of the line in Java, that's where it belongs. So that that makes sense. Right. And um, was there anything else? So there's one of the oh, uh, your Spock tests. If you ever write any Spock tests, please tell me you don't indent under the labels. No, no, no. no that's not a thing, is it? Yeah, that's just evil. That's just I, and I see it too often, and that's just evil. So, okay. Uh, I have to do one tiny bit of. Well, actually, I have to. I have to thank No Fluff Just Stuff, the conference series, for kindly hosting the Groovy Podcast homepage. Uh, if you miss any Groovy podcasts, or you're not on the RSS feed, or whatever you like, or don't get them on iTunes, everything is linked on the NoFluffJustStuff.com/slash/GroovyPodcast. So that's always a, a place you can get everything you need. 
Um, one minor bit of self-promotion, I have to point out. I guess I shouldn't say minor. I should say blatant self-promotion. Uh, I have a book coming out myself. Uh, it's an O'Reilly book. It's going to be called Modern Java Recipes, and it's solving problems related to lambdas and streams and method references and parallel streams and all kinds of stuff in Java 8 and, to some degree, 9 as well. And that book is now available in early release form, uh, hopefully to be done I suppose I should say real soon now in all caps, right? Real soon, <laughs> as soon as I can get it done. Uh, anything you want else you want to mention, or uh, anything else you want to say? Hi, anybody else you want to say hi to, or whatever? Uh, no, just uh, sort of encourage folks to try out uh, build scans if you haven't played around with it, um, and if you uh, basically if your organization or team wants to try out Gradle Enterprise, to uh, give us a shout and we can. We can arrange that. Um, so far, the feedback we've gotten has been really good, and the teams that have been using it have found it immensely helpful in debugging their Gradle issues, uh, which admittedly is can be hard to do um, sort of by hand without uh, without some tools to help you out. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to to be with us today. I mean, that it was kind of a last minute request, but. I felt like I missed out on the podcast last week, and then the sound came out bad, so that the whole thing felt lost. And I'm sure we'll try to fix that. But in the meantime, I did want to get a chance to talk to you anyway. So again, thank you very much uh, for coming on, and hopefully I'll see you again pretty soon. Yep. Take care. Okay. You take care. Bye-bye.